All right. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. My name is Tony Anderson. I am the... Turn it backwards. Who am I? Yes. I'm the executive pastor and pastor of counseling here at the chapel. Uh, Doug and his family had some scheduled vacation this week, and so they are all together. But if you would, please be in prayer for the family. Doug's dad died unexpectedly Monday from a fall at his home in Pennsylvania. So even though they had all planned to be together, they are together and encouraging each other. But anytime you lose a loved one, particularly unexpectedly, uh, there is grieving. So if you would pray for them. Um, I would appreciate it. So, but I'm glad you're here. Sorry. Have y'all ever spilled things before? Yeah, I I was just thinking uh, there was a period of time this summer where I think I spilled a drink three times in a two-week period, and it's like, oh, man, it's time to get the sippy cup back out again. And I just thought, I think that's why Yetis are so cool. You get to have sippy cups, but be cool while you have them, right? So I think that's popularity there. But do you ever remember as a kid, maybe at a family function, you spilled your drink? Maybe you finally got to go from the kid table to the grown-up table, and it's a big function, and you spill it, and everyone looks at you, and you think you're going to get in trouble, and you see them looking at you and go, it was an accident. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't purpose to do it. Accidents have no purpose. So if that's true and the evolutionists are correct and that we have, there's no creator and we are just cosmic accidents, we have no purpose, right? But I think even believers and unbelievers just, they sort of innately know what is my purpose? They struggle with finding a purpose. And so even for an unbeliever, they, they go through life saying, frequently saying, I feel like a, um, a, a circle trying to be fit into a square hole. I just, I struggle with my purpose. Now, as Christ followers, we know we're, there's a creator. We were created, but we still struggle with what is my purpose. In the counseling room, I hear that a lot of times, just trying to find purpose. But as you talk to students, maybe finishing up high school or college, it's like, still trying to find my purpose in life. What is my purpose? And that's the question that we want to answer today is what is my purpose? Well, in Isaiah 43, 7, God says through the prophet Isaiah, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, in the context, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah is saying that he is going to bring the children of Israel who had been in exile because of their sin and disobedience, he is going to bring the people back together and establish a nation. And he says, the people I'm talking about are those, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. So those who are called by his name, his people apply to us as Christ's followers. And he says, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. See, I have a created purpose. I was created to bring glory to God. But sometimes when I function for something else, life just doesn't go as planned. And I have a visual, I think that might help. Have you ever been out and about and you needed a screwdriver? Maybe a battery died and you have to open the battery compartment or whatever, and you don't have a screwdriver. What do you use when you don't have a screwdriver? What? Butter knife? 
coin, okay? Sure. My go-to is a key. And so I get my keys out and I'll try to work on it. And depending on whether it's a flathead or a Phillips, I'll try to get it to work and it'll keep slipping off. And usually about this time, my wife will say something helpful like, don't strip the screw, we'll never get it out. And I say, I know, I know, and proceed to strip the screw out of it. But the point is that when I use a key as a screwdriver, it may get the job done, but it doesn't function as well as when it's used for its created purpose. This key was created to open the front door of my house, and it works very well when it's used for that purpose. But when we try to function for something other than our intended purpose, we're just keys trying to be screwdrivers. We're just keys trying to be screwdrivers. Now, there should be, we might want to stop here and say, okay, that's what believers are called for, to live for the glory of God. But what about unbelievers? Well, we know that unbelievers, we know from the Bible, it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. But we do know, it says of God in Romans chapter 3, that God is both the just and the justifier. And so for those of us who place faith in Christ as the substitute who died a substitutionary death for us, we've been justified with God, made one with him. But for those who die apart from that, God's holiness, his righteousness is put on display through the eternal punishment that people experience when they die separate from Christ. And so our goal here is that not that you would put God's glory on display that way, but that through faith in him, you would live for the glory of God. And so we start out with my primary goal as a Christ follower is to please and glorify God. My primary goal is to please and glorify God. We have to remember we are created. We're not the creator. The creator gets to decide what the created's purpose is. And my primary goal is to please and glorify God. Now, does the Bible have anything else to say about our purpose? Sure does. Well, there it is, established by my creator. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul is saying home or absent. He's, he's saying in this body or absent in heaven, we make it our goal to be pleasing to God. So whether I'm dead or alive, my goal is to be pleasing to God. And it's very interesting as you look how this one verse is translated among our primary uh, translations. This is the NASB, uh, NASB. It says we have it as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And ambition is an ardent desire for something. You have ambition in life. It's my ambition to be the best at this or the best at this. And so you can have ambition, but if your primary ambition is not pleasing and glorifying God, you're just a key trying to be a screwdriver. Then you look at, though, at the NIV. The NIV says we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. A goal is the end toward which effort is directed and exerted. So I ask myself, in, am I exerting effort is at the goal of being pleasing to God? Is that what I am focused on? And then the ESV says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. An aim is a clearly directed intent or purpose. So as you look at how these three words, that, that 
term is translated, you get the idea that there's a singleness, a single-mindedness that it should be our goal to be pleasing to God. Charles Hodges, uh, Dr. Charles Hodges, who's also a biblical counselor, says it this way, I should want to please God more than I want to breathe, more than I want to breathe. And I thought about that. Have you ever been short of air and maybe you're swimming a long distance, seeing how long you can hold your breath or you had the wind knocked out of you and when you could finally breathe, it was like, (gasps) in that moment, I want to breathe pretty badly. But I should want to please God even more than that. And so as I was thinking about the the single nature of this, I was reminded of something from my favorite movie, Anybody know what movie this screenshot's from? The Patriot. Actually, it's The Patriot. It's loosely based on the real-life patriot, uh, Francis Marion. But in this movie, the Mel Gibson father figure has four sons. And right before this scene, a ruthless British colonel has killed his second oldest son and taken his oldest son uh, prisoner with the goal of executing him. And so the Mel Gibson character rounds up his two youngest boys, and they're going to go engage the enemy in an effort to rescue the oldest son. And before they engage the enemy, Gibson reminds his sons of something that he he taught them while hunting. Aim small, miss small. The idea being if you aim at your target with focus, most likely you're going to hit your target. I think for us and for me sometimes, there are other goals in my life that aren't sinful per se, but I make them my primary goal and hope, well, hopefully it'll be pleasing to God. I'll do what I want to do, and then maybe he'll be pleased with it. So I aim big, and the result is I miss big. So we have to make sure that as we are trying to live for our creative purpose, that we see that pleasing God should be the highest priority. It ought to be our most, our singular most purpose is to be pleasing to him. Well, that's not all God tells us about our purpose. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Okay. So based upon this, what don't I have to do for the glory of God? Nothing, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything, really, please, everything for the glory of God. The first two specific examples may be bad enough for us if we think about it. I have to eat for the glory of God. Now, first of all, there's two sides to that coin. God is a giver of good gifts, and we can enjoy things in moderation to his glory. Thanks to God, I can eat bacon, to the glory of God. I can eat bacon. I can smoke ribs. Those things are good. We can enjoy them as long as we thank him. But as we sang, our bodies don't belong to us. And so now I have to be a good steward of the body. So what, what I eat has to be in good uh, steward of the body that he has purchased for me. Same with what we drink. Do all to the glory of God. But then Paul has to go on and say, whatever you do. Everything, whatever I do. Would, if you're honest and you read that, do you ever think, oh my gosh, can I get a break? Everything, I have to be that conscious of everything I do, I have to do for the glory of God. Can I get a day off? How about an afternoon off? It's football season, okay? 
right? Because if I don't have to live for the glory of God, then I live for the glory of me. And again, as I was um, wrestling with this, I was thinking, gosh, this seems like a burden. Everything, whatever I do, I have to do for the glory of God. And then I thought, you know what? I really need to define glory if I'm going to do everything for the glory of God. So I waited till now for us to really define that because glory and glorify are church words, right? It, you know, if you had people who didn't, hadn't grown up in the church and you say, my primary purpose is to glorify God, they would say, I really don't know what that means. And sometimes I think we don't either. But glorify is a robust word, has lots, lots of subheadings under the definition. But for our purpose, I want us to think of it this way. Glorify means to give a right opinion of. To give a right opinion of. And so in our context, it's, I want to give a right opinion of Jesus and God to other people. So if my primary goal is to glorify God, then I'm to give a right opinion of Jesus to other people. Think of it this way. If someone who really didn't know much about Jesus followed me or you around 24-7, they would go, oh, now I, so, I get a sense of what this Jesus person is like. And although that seems like a high standard, we'll talk about that in a minute, it helped my thinking. Like, now it's no longer a burden. I've got to do this for the glory of God. It's now an opportunity to put Christ on display to a world that desperately needs to see him. And so that is a total 180 of my things. Is, oh, I've got to do this too. Wow, what an opportunity to live for the glory of God. So as we think about our purpose, it's also all-encompassing. My primary goal is to please and glorify God. It was established by my creator. I don't get to decide my purpose as the created. It should be the highest single priority, and it is all-encompassing. Whatever you do is an opportunity to please and glorify God. But you say, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not buying that everything bit because you're thinking, Maybe you're uh, homebound, and so you can't get out much, and you're watching this online right now. And you go, how can I live for the glory of God? I'm home alone. Or maybe you're a young mom with uh, infants and toddlers, and you say, well, all they do is pee and poop on me. How am I living for the glory of God, just constantly changing clothes and cleaning myself up, and I don't have anyone who I can have a conversation with? I just don't see how I can live for the glory of God. Or maybe you work remotely and say, you know what? I never get out of my pajamas all day. I'm just sitting here working at the computer. How can I live for the glory of God? Or you may think, you know what? I am home alone. I really am off the hook. I don't have to live for the glory of God because I'm by myself. Well, in Ephesians 3, Paul says this. He's talking about the fact that Christ came and died and was resurrected and then established his church here on earth. And it says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God, that is the, the, just the expanse, just how great God's wisdom is, his plan for salvation, his plan for the church. And it says that the church can make that manifold wisdom known. Who's the church? You are the church, and you are to make his manifold wisdom known to whom? The authorities in the heavenly places. 
That's not flesh and blood. That's the spiritual world that we have an opportunity to actually display to the seen and the unseen world, the angelic beings, the Satan and his demons, how great and wonderful God is. In fact, my wife was actually the first one to be convicted of this and shared it with me. Actually, she shared it in a counseling context with another couple. And she talked about the fact that as we were still growing in our marriage relationship, I was trying to learn to be biblical husband, live with your wife in an understanding way, love her like Christ, sacrificially. And she was trying to grow in being a biblical wife and submitting to her husband, being a co-laborer. I'm sure that there must have been a time when my wisdom and discernment did not dazzle her. But she knew that she had to submit. And, you know, submission is only required when there's disagreement. Otherwise, it's agreement. So we disagreed on something. She, growing in submission, said she would do what I wanted to do. I left for work, and she tells the story that when the garage door closed, it was the heavy sigh and eye roll. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure she was tempted to think, what an idiot. But I have to submit. And then she learned this passage and the truth behind this passage and realized that when she did that, the unseen world was saying, see, God? She doesn't think your plan is wise at all. She's not living to your glory right now. Sure, there's no human seeing it, but she's not living for your glory right now. The unseen world saw it. Do you think God is pleased when we demonstrate that he's worthy of worship to the unseen world? Do you think that pleases him? Absolutely. I mean, we think we're all caught up in ourselves, but God is pleased and glorified when we show his manifold wisdom to the unseen world. So now, think about this. You really do, in whatever you do, have an opportunity to be pleasing and glorifying God with how you live when you're alone. I had someone after th- come up after Thursday and say, this was great perspective. I'm single and I live alone. And I, for- I didn't realize how great my opportunity is to live for the glory of God. And we have a biblical example of this in the story of Job. Job 1.1, we, we're introduced to Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Later on in Job, there's a conversation between God and Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. In that conversation, did you see it? Satan made an accusation. Who did Satan accuse? He accused God. He said, God, you are not worthy of worship. Job only praises you because you're his cosmic vending machine. You give him everything he wants. If you stop doing that, he would not praise you anymore. Satan departs from there, and we read through a series of events. In one day, Job learns that all his wealth is gone, All his means of acquiring wealth is gone, and all his children are killed. He gets news of that all in one day. Now, we've had storms recently, and you or some people you know may truly have lost 
everything. Possessions, but maybe not their means of an income, still have a job. He lost, because everything was tied to possessions back then, he lost his possessions, his income, and then he finds out that all his children have been killed. I really don't think we can imagine the gut punch that is. And he, it says he heard about it right after another. And Job's response, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He showed God's worthy of praise, even when he doesn't just give me everything I want, my stuff. Well, Satan in chapter two says, well, that's because you didn't let me touch his body. So God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you just can't kill him. And so Job is inflicted with painful boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, coming right on the stem of losing everything. And right about that time, his wife, who did not have the spiritual gift of encouragement, said, curse God and die. Now, we sometimes struggle with thinking that way, right? But Job's response was, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, a period of time goes by. Job does not persevere perfectly, okay? He still had room to grow. He wasn't guilty of the sins his friends had accused him of, but he went through a period where he was sort of saying, why me? It's not fair. And toward the end of Job, God basically says, Job, stand up, put on your jock strap. I'm gonna answer, ask questions and you're gonna answer me. And he then says, were you here when I did this? Were you here when I did this? Were you here when I did this? And Job finally says, you know what? I repent. I thought I knew you, but now I truly see how great you are. Job repented of questioning God before his circumstances ever changed. Before his circumstances ever changed. And the really moving part of this story to me is nowhere in the scripture is there any evidence that Job was ever aware of that initial conversation between God and Satan. It wasn't like, oh, I'm living so that you can be proven right in this conversation. God, no, just because he worshiped his creator for who his creator was, he persevered and grew in Christ's likeness for the glory of God. So um, our purpose is to please God because we were created for that purpose. It should be our highest priority and it should be in all situations, whether people are watching or not. But it begs the question, why do I want to please God? Why do I want to please God? When we first started coming to the chapel, I was blessed to be able to work with Bill Winton in the junior high ministry. And I was able to teach as part of his teaching team. And some of the instruction he gave me was this. You want your students to know why they want to listen to you very early in your talk. Otherwise, they may zone out. So very early on, creating them a motive or a desire to want to hear what you have to say. And so you may have just looked at these passages and said, yeah, I see my goal is to please God, but why do I want to please God? Why do I want to? And sometimes in the counseling room, we'll go through those passages and I'll say, okay, so if that's true, why do you want to please God? And it's interesting the answers I get. What do you think some of the answers are? If someone says, why do you want to please God? What do you think some of the answers are? 
So you go to heaven, yes, okay? Some say because the Bible says so, and that's, that's not wrong. I mean, if anyone has the right to say, because I said so, it's God, okay? We get that. Some would talk about, well, blessings, life is easier. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to share Christ, all those things, and they're good, but I think we have to recognize, and I hope you noticed in worship how single-minded we were about this, is because of the truth of Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. We were actually children of wrath. We were enemies of God when Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to clean ourselves up. It wasn't a question of, okay, I'm getting ready to die. This side over here, you've raised your game a good bit, so I'm going to die for you. Uh, you guys, not you. He died for us while we were unworthy, and we still are unworthy of that. And so that should motivate us out of gratitude and love. So uh, ask yourself this. On a daily basis, how long after my feet hit the ground do I think of the cross and what Jesus did for me? How quickly does that thought come into my head? And then when the thought comes into your head, does it motivate you to want to please him no matter what your circumstances are? I think we have to be honest that sometimes the motivation differs. And I think when we let the circumstances change our motivation is we start discounting the price Christ paid or discounting our sins. Well, I really wasn't that bad. I know we had to die for them, but yeah, I know we had to die, but I really wasn't that bad. So he died. That ought to be our motivation. Then we think about this. It goes on. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. This word for exult is also translated 20 times as boast. We boast in our Savior. He saved us from eternal death, but he saved us to live a fruitful life. He saved us to experience oneness with him. That should be our motive. Lord, I see the purpose, and because I see how good you are, I want to put you on display. I want to glorify you. Now, I do want to speak about uh, blessings a little bit. It, we do know the Bible promises there are blessings from obedience, things like peace, hope, and joy. Now, I'm not talking about blessings of, you know, some type of name it, claim it, blab it, grab it type stuff. I'm talking about that we know we experience a peace, hope, and joy through obedience. And I want to caution us, though, not to make the blessings the goal. In other words, I really want to experience peace, hope, and joy. So I'm chasing peace, hope, and joy, which is like herding cats and not making pleasing God my primary aim. When we start doing this, we're aiming big and we're going to miss big because then I, when I'm looking for peace, hope, and joy as the goal, I'm going to try to control people and circumstances and God didn't call you to that and he didn't give you what you needed in order to do that. But when we seek to please Christ, take his yoke, learn from him, he does promise a blessing of rest and peace 
So let's just be careful that let's enjoy and thank God for the blessings of obedience, but let's recognize they are a byproduct, a result of living for our primary purpose of glorifying him. One other thing, I think I say this as an encouragement. Primary goal is to please God. If that is true, who or what can stop you from achieving your primary goal? Self. Can your spouse keep you from pleasing God? No. Can your teenager keep you from pleasing God? Students, can your parents or your teachers or your classmates keep you from pleasing God? No. They can't. No matter what, even if people and circumstances don't change, you have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, every time you put your head on your pillow at night. Now, you might have to change, but no one can keep you from the created purpose that God made you for. I say that as an encouragement because sometimes you look around and say, I don't think these people or my circumstances will ever change. They don't have to. They don't have to. Well, if you've been around the chapel, you know that our goal, we have a goal, mission statement as well, is to grow fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ followers. And like a lot of organizations, when you have a mission statement or a purpose statement, you then develop strategies to achieve your purpose. And if you said it on staff meetings, and you've probably heard them, we develop strategies where we want to connect people, get connected. We want to have strategies that equip people to know God and to share God and then to make an impact. So in all those essentials of connect, equip, and impact, we have strategies. Now, our strategies are not inspired. You know, they're not uh, right from God, but through prayer, we try to do things that we think would be effective. But God, who created us for a purpose, is also good enough to give us the strategy, and it is inspired, and we know that it is the strategy that helps us achieve our purpose. So what is that strategy? Matthew 3, 17 says, And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right. I may not always be the sharpest pencil in the box, all right? But I can figure this one out. My goal is to please God. God is pleased with Jesus. Therefore, the more I become like Jesus, the more I'm going to be pleasing to God. God shows me the strategy, and that strategy is I please God by becoming more like Jesus. I please God by becoming more like Jesus. So think of some other contexts where you've had goals, maybe strategies. Have you ever been in a situation where there was somebody or some people who would try to block you from achieving your goal? Goal blockers, so to speak. Yeah, I shared with you before. In high school, I played basketball. I wanted to be a starter, all right? We had a basketball team of 12. There are five starters, so there are at least seven other people who had the same goal and were trying to block me from my goal. They were very successful at that. So, but they were goal blockers. The good news is, if you, in our situation, God has given us the strategy and then he is also working for the same thing. The creator of the universe is also working things to help you become more like Jesus. We see this in Romans 8, 28. And we hope that God causes most things to work out all right to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
That's wrong? No. Yeah. I had to pull a Doug at least once, okay? No, the scripture says we know, not we guess, not we hope so. We know that God causes what? All things. Even your circumstance right now? Is that an all thing? Yes. All things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Does this say everything is good? No. But it says God is actually working all things for good to those who love God. This is a promise to Christ's followers. It is a promise. He's working everything for good. And I think that's important because sometimes in a sin-cursed world where there is sin and evil, the world will tell you, even some good-intended Christians would say, well, I know you've been damaged by that. I know there's been destruction. That is a lie of Satan. God is working everything for a constructive purpose, not a destructive purpose. And that is for your good. Now, we have to look at verse 29, and we also have to recognize the truth. God is the creator and sustainer of all. So in our language, his game, his rules, right? And he gets to define good. 829 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So God has told us the strategy. If you become more like Jesus, you'll fulfill the purpose. And here's the good news. I am working all your circumstances for the same purpose to conform you to the image of my son. He created us for a purpose and he's working all things to bring that purpose about. So in the difficult circumstance, we're saying, oh, I don't see what's going on here. Maybe ask yourself, how can I become more like Christ in this situation? And that could look many ways, but here's just an easy way. Just look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And see if there's an opportunity to increase in that in your circumstance. Unless you're perfected in all of these, you can, you can leave if you're perfected in these. Okay. Then you have room to grow in those. I still remember being convicted when Doug was teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. And he talked about patience. How do you grow in patience? You have to be in a situation that requires patience. How many times, say, oh, give me patience. We're really saying, God, make sure there's no cars on the highway. Make sure. No, we have to grow in this grow in this. And so look for ways to carry out the strategy that God is working. So we have a purpose. We have a strategy. How do we know if we're hitting the mark, so to speak? You know, the hot term with organizations now is metrics, right? What metrics are we going to use to see if we're growing, if we're doing what we said we were going to do? Uh, there's even a lot of metrics for whether or not you have a healthy church, some of them are measure the percentage of children to adult attendance on Sunday or percentage of baptisms to members, things of that nature. Now, those metrics are wisdom of a man. They're, they're based on godly principles, but they're not inspired. But how do we know if we are carrying out the strategy of becoming like Jesus? Well, God, once again, actually gives us the metric. And because it's his metric, we know it's the right metric. If you look at 2 Peter 3:18a, this is the last verse of 2 Peter. It says, "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Now, if you're like me, 
or a habit I used to have. I'm really working on this. If you're reading your Bible, maybe you're making a plan to read the Bible, and you get to the end of a book, and you're excited, you can say, I can check off. I've read a book. I'm ready to start a new one, particularly maybe if the book ends like very short on the page like mine does here for Second Peter. The temptation is when you see the end to go, book around the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, tomorrow I get to start a new book. And so what we're really doing when we get there is we're reading this as sincerely yours, the Apostle Peter. But when we read it that way, we miss something. This is a command. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is saying grow. And he's saying in the grace. We think of grace as that unmerited favor. But the grace of God is a power to change. It is power to change. And in that power, we are to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So our metric... So long, I'll give you time to write it down. It's God knows I will not be perfect, but he does expect me to be growing and changing in Christ's likeness. As you write this down, I want to make, I want to make things very clear because sometimes people try to learn this and they come back and the way they repeat it is, God doesn't expect me to be perfect. No, that's not what it says. Every time there's obedience, he wants obedience. There's just a recognition that in these bodies and this flesh, he knows we will not be perfect. But when we confess, he is faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But he then wants us to grow and change in Christ's likeness. And based on the passage, we see that he commands us to grow. Now, if you flip in that second Peter to the first part of second Peter, chapter one, verse three says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, word, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter is telling us that God through his word and his promises and the, the indwelling spirit has given us everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need in order to grow. So we see that God provides all that we need to grow. If you keep reading in chapter one, it says, in effect, therefore, or as a result of God giving you everything you need, he then gives us a list of characteristics, Christ-like characteristics that we are to be growing in. And then he says, if you are growing in these characteristics, I've given you everything to grow, I've commanded you to grow, and if you are doing that, it will render you neither useless nor unfruitful. So if that's true, if I'm not useless, I'm useful. If I'm not unfruitful, I'm right. So God gives us, tells us how to see if we're growing, commands us to grow, gives us what we need, gives us a strategy, grow in Christ's likeness. And when we do that, we live out the purpose for which we were created. So if the truth is, he, if that is true, then we have to recognize that sometimes when we look at these scriptures and apply it to our own lives, or we're trying to encourage and disciple someone else, and we show them what the scripture says they are to do or not to do, and someone says, I know what it says, but I can't do that. That is a lie of Satan. 
What we're saying is, I won't, or I don't want to. We have to recognize that we have all we need. So I can't live for the glory of God. I can't obey you is a lie. It's never a situation of I can't. So at the chapel, again, we're trying to grow fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ followers. We're trying to share the gospel so that God would grant them new life and move them from the coffin to the crib. And then we want to share the truth of God's word so that people will grow, move from the crib to the table where they're no longer having to just be fed milk, but the meaty parts of scripture, discipling one another. Then we want them to continue to grow by getting up from the table, going to the stove so they're then investing in the lives of others. We want people growing. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, we do not want you to coast. And so this may sound unusual, but if you do not want to grow in Christ's likeness, our prayer is that you are uncomfortable here. Not because we're mean or anything, but we just want the truth, the conviction of God's word and the spirit working in you to say, I was created to please God by becoming more like Christ. I want to grow. And so that is our desire for you. Now, also want to sort of speak to something related. See it in the counseling room sometimes, but maybe in your small groups you you've seen this, you've encouraged someone in obedience, maybe in a hard situation, and they go and they do it. Then they come back to you and they say, I did what you said. And you go, wait, I didn't say it. God said it. Okay. I did what God said and it didn't work. What do they mean? My circumstances didn't change. My relationship didn't change. Therefore it didn't work have to remember, my goal is to please God by putting Jesus on display. You can do that even if circumstances don't change. Maybe God wants you to put him on display in those circumstances to be used as a channel of his grace. So the, it doesn't work, again, is not accurate if pleasing him is primary. But sometimes we want to try to use the things of God to chase a change in circumstances, chase that peace, hope, and joy rather than experiencing it as a result of pleasing him. So I was excited to teach because I want you to look at those three key statements. That's what I refer to them as. Think about this. My primary goal is to please and glorify God. I please God by becoming like Jesus. And then it says, God knows I will not be perfect, but he does expect me to be growing and changing in Christ's likeness. I want that to be true of Christian Family Chapel, and I want it to be true of each one of you. If that became the lens through which you engaged every person, every circumstance, every decision you had to make, we would make a tremendous impact for the Lord in this community. But too many times, it seems so simple, so we get diverted. It's not complicated. It ain't always easy, but it's not complicated. And a practical example in my own life um, as this came to bear in my life. Some of you may know my wife, Lisa, is a rape survivor. It happened a year before I met her uh, at college. And then we got married. And I didn't know about it until after we were married, some time after we were married. But in the interim, it had greatly affected particularly our physical intimacy and our relationship. That was a source of constant quarreling and fighting. And then I learned about the situation, and that's actually how we got exposed to biblical counseling as we started working through that. But I kept thinking, you know, 
living for myself, and then I realized, wait a minute, I am to live for the glory of God. And so I started thinking, wait a minute, I am to put Christ on display to a bride who desperately needs that. And so the progression was, okay, as a Christian husband, I guess this is what I have to do. You know, it's my cross to bear. But then I kept doing that, and I lived, I've experienced the promise of Philippians where it says, it is the Spirit at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Yes, the Spirit gave me the strength to do the work that I was commanded to, but He started conforming my will so that my will became the will of the Father. And as I did that, I did experience peace, hope, and joy because I made pleasing Him primary. And so I am encouraging you, whatever you are going through, whatever your circumstances are, ask yourself, how can I go about living for my purpose by becoming more like Christ in growing measure? So this week, how can you please God in your relationships? How can you please and glorify God in your relationship? How can you make it primary in your relationships? Y'all are all sitting together. Most of you, you you're in relationship. So husbands, how do you... Live with your wife in an understanding way. Love her sacrificially like Christ. Be a spiritual leader. Wives, how do you grow in becoming submitted to your husband like Christ was to the Father? What would that look like? Students, how can you glorify God in your social media? When you think about posting, tweeting, snapping, is it for the glory of Christ? Could you say, here, before I hit send, Jesus... Will this give a right opinion of you? Now, as I thought about pointing that out to students, I realized uh, adults, we need to think the same thing. Does this give a right opinion of Jesus the way we communicate in our relationships? Do you date in a way that pleases and glorifies God? Do you interact with coworkers? in a way that pleases and glorifies God. Remember, a coworker who hasn't been exposed to the gospel, who doesn't know much about Jesus, should, if interviewed, said, well, I don't know much, haven't read much about Jesus, but by looking at you, I get a sense of what Jesus is all about. What a great opportunity. Somewhat of a scary thought, isn't it? Okay, how about your circumstances? Maybe you have an illness and a disease that God has not healed you of. And you're thinking, I'm just trying to survive. I can't make pleasing God my primary goal or purpose. No, you have an opportunity to please God in those circumstances, to show that because of the promises of God, you can persevere with hope. Maybe you have financial hardship. And again, it's like, I'm just trying to stay afloat. Is it possible to please God in financial hardship? Absolutely. We live in a sin-cursed world. There are many of you who have been sinned against. Maybe you experience the evil of others on a weekly basis. How do you demonstrate the love of Christ to an enemy in those circumstances? You know, it says overcome evil with good. That means demonstrable acts of kindness to your enemies. That would put Christ on display. He died for us while we were enemies. Remember, what a demonstrable act of kindness while we were enemies. This week, just write down what 
I want you to write down, this is a relationship or a circumstance where I'm going to try to grow in Christ's likeness this week. And real briefly, in my role, I get to oversee the Hope Center. And I want to remind you again that we have counseling discipleship training that starts in January. This year, we're doing it differently. It's going to be a Friday night and a Saturday, one weekend a month in January, February, March, and April. We're hoping that people who couldn't do the weekly commit could do the weekends. And so I ask you to prayerfully consider taking this because this will equip you not only to understand what pleasing God would look like in many circumstances, but equip you to help others as well. We really want to intersect the scripture with real life. So I'd ask you to prayerfully consider that. And if you have questions about something that you heard or really want to know, well, what would pleasing God look like? We have men and women who would love to pray with you. They're outside outside our conference room, which is right outside the doors behind you. If you're in south, it's to the doors in the back to your right and around the corner. So let me pray for us. Father, you are a good father. We thank you so much for the gift of your son, Lord, that through his death and resurrection, we have eternal life here and now and in the age to come. Lord, out of gratitude for that, may we seek to put you on display, to seek to please and glorify you. Lord, don't let us uh, uh, get lost in the simplicity of it, Lord. Help us to really make that our primary focus. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, God bless.